so I'm here today. This conference is about suffering. Were you, were you aware of that? Did you know? Because a bunch of people last night asked me, so what are you talking about tomorrow? And I was like, I'm talking about suffering. And they're like, hmm, interesting. So I'm not sure how many of you, you know, we tried to sort of mask that fact with hope amidst the ruins. Uh, but we actually are talking about suffering. So you, you signed up for a conference about suffering, which means if you didn't know that, um, you're probably fairly well adjusted. If you did know that, then, you know, you're probably in pretty bad shape. Um, but, uh, so, you know, no one does conferences about suffering, because we all live in massive denial. Uh, and yet, at the same time, is there anything more important and more uh, grounded, more real, uh, that takes up a greater percentage of our life that we could talk about? You know, why is it that uh, the thing which seems to mark our lives more than anything else is the thing that we want to talk about the least? Uh, so I think it's, um, it's courageous, actually, that, that we're here to, to talk about this. And um, I hope that I have a few uh, words to say on the topic. So I want to start with uh, a movie clip, because this is Mockingbird after all, and I, I'm, um, I kind of like movies, and I know that you're a very highly educated and erudite crew, so I was trying to find something that was equal to your intellectual capacity. So um, this is not very long, it's only about 45 seconds, but... Um, Let's, uh, let's take a look. Okay, so, um, you know, that's kind of the opposite of what Mockingbird does, you know, that's kind of a lowbrow, in a lot of ways, expressly Christian content from Bruce Almighty, although, of course, the movie doesn't quite get it right, because no one can ever go whole hog with the gospel, um, but that's, uh, I thought that, that would be, that's a very fitting clip to start with, because that's, that's really the question that we're dealing with this weekend, you know, what do you do when you're... In, your, you know, in a place in your life where, like, you know, Bruce has said, I, I'm done. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be God. I surrender to your will. Um, or you're trying to surrender to his will. You know, I believe, help my unbelief. And you're in that kind of place, uh, sort of on your knees. And then you get hit by a truck. You get hit by a truck. Uh, you get hit by uh, disease or divorce or uh, depression. Tullian Chavidian, I saw him last week, two nights ago, I talked about you know, the, the three Ds. Um, or um, death uh, or the suffering of a child or uh, the loss of a job or the inability to find a job or uh, crushing loneliness. Um, or maybe, you know, I don't want to assume that everyone here is a Christian. There may be some people here who, who are sort of thinking about it or who are um, uh, or, or just not quite sure how they feel about Jesus but are trying hard to be good people, trying hard to live good lives. Um, 
and getting hit by a truck. So how are we supposed to mesh this idea of a, you know, if you know Mockingbird, you know, we're obsessed with the idea that God is gracious and merciful and forgiving and sort of unconditionally and unbelievably and unendingly loving. You know, a God who says things like, uh, I have come in order that you may have life and have it to the full, or come unto me, all ye who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Or, it is not God's will that any should perish. And yet, we suffer. Yet there are trucks in our lives that seem to be constantly kind of uh, knocking us over. So in short, how are we to understand and deal with suffering, and specifically our own suffering? You know, like not, we're not really talking about the suffering of, um, you know, sexual slaves in Thailand. I mean, that's awful. That's terrible. But let's talk about our own suffering. Let's not minimize our own suffering. Let's not uh, sort of compartmentalize and, and diminish our own suffering because someone else somewhere else, someone else somewhere else is suffering more than we are or we think they are. How do we bring together our belief in a good and gracious and unconditionally, unendingly loving God with the reality of suffering in our lives? Um, about 10 years ago, you may remember, there was a missionary family, the Bowers family in Peru. Uh, Jim and Veronica, uh, his wife Veronica, known as Ronnie. They had a six-year-old boy named Corey. They had an infant daughter named Charity. And they were uh, in an airplane, like a little propeller plane in Peru, kind of traveling between uh, mission sites when a uh, sort of CIA anti-drug task force spotted them and thought they might be drug runners. Um, and eventually the CIA decided they weren't drug runners, but in sort of the intervening confusion, <clears throat> they were shot down by a Peruvian uh, jet fighter. And uh, Jim survived, and Corey survived. You know, the, the, there were three people that were killed. The pilot of the plane, and Ronnie, his wife, and their little daughter, uh, Charity, were all killed by these uh, bullets with which they were, you know, riddled. And the plane went down this river, and um, they had to sort of fish themselves out, and, and Jim and Corey survived. And when Jim came back, obviously he had, um, he had a lot to say, and uh, it sort of made a thing, it was like, you know, cover of the New York Times type thing, you know, kind of uh, collateral damage from the war on drugs. But he talked about, Jim did, he actually said, he said, the, the bullet that killed Ronnie and Charity was a sovereign bullet. It was a sovereign bullet. And, and when he said that, what he meant was that the death of his wife and daughter was not the result of God's powerlessness. It was not the result of sort of purely of human sin, of human action, but that somehow God was present and even active in, in their death. That God was there. He was present and he was active. And the reason that I heard that story is because I was at this... Um, Christian, you know, evening with this uh, very well-known sort of author and theologian who shall remain nameless, uh, you know, to protect the guilty. Um, but he went out of his way, because this was right after this happened, he went out of his way to tell us just how wrong Jim Bowers was. How that wasn't a sovereign bullet. How God really had nothing to do with it. How the death of Ronnie and Charity Bowers was a result of human sin, 
and human choice and not divine action. And what he seemed to be saying was, you know, blame their death on the pilot who shot them down, blame their death on the CIA, blame their death on the war on drugs, blame their death on the Medellin cartels, you know, blame their death on the Wright brothers, you know, but just don't blame their death on anyone, you know, anyone else but God. Don't blame it on God. And maybe you've heard this kind of line of, of reasoning before. I've actually heard it twice in the last month, sort of very dishearteningly. And the, the argument goes like this. You know, that the evil and the suffering in the world is, is not God's fault, but rather uh, it's the result of uh, human free will and that uh, God loves us. So much. a part of God's love for us is that he's given us the freedom to choose, to make our own choices. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And that God loves us so much that he'll sort of let us make our own decisions. Because after all, if we don't choose to love God of our own free will, if we don't choose to do the right thing of our own free will, then what good is it? What good is our choice? So God has sort of left us alone. Um, and it's up to us between to be good and evil and God and the devil. And we can't hold God responsible for our bad choices. It's our bad choices. Uh, that cause suffering. It's our bad choices that are that are evil. Now, I could poke a lot of holes in this argument. You know, I was talking to Aaron Zimmerman, whom some of you know, and uh, he's a co-worker of mine down in uh, Houston. And uh, he said it's kind of like, you know, there's a lifeguard at the, the beach or the pool, and they see a, a five-year-old kid drowning. And they sit there and, um, you know, uh, they don't do anything. They sort of let it happen. But because, they're, because they, they didn't make it happen, they're not responsible. You know? God didn't make it happen, but he sort of lets it happen. But he's not responsible. You know, he doesn't work evil. He doesn't work suffering. Or another, you know, another argument I can make is, what about natural disasters? What about diseases? What about things that seem to be clearly not the result of human action? You know, when the, the great death swept over Europe, or there was... A, tremendous earthquake in uh, Portugal, um, sort of this was all in the Middle Ages, and, and Portugal was known as one of the most devoutly Catholic nations in Europe. This question, you know, it, it, it made this line of reasoning very problematic. You know, no one caused the Black Death, no one caused the earthquake, and yet I will say, I've actually heard people say that once again, you know, the problem isn't the earthquake, the problem is that sinful people choose to build houses on fault zones, you know? <laughs> That if we weren't also uh, sort of arrogant, uh, wanting to live in California, you know, or, or if people would just uh, build buildings up to code, you know, and use more rebar, then people wouldn't die so much. Or, or the, the disease thing is a result of economic inequity. And, and you know, obviously there is, there's like a little bit of truth to that. But come on. You know, to, to what degree are, are we going to go? How far are we going to go in our desire to sort of absolve God? from all the, the things that happen in the world. So I could, I could poke all sorts of you know, holes, but, but ultimately, that whole line of reasoning about our free will and God's love and, and God sort of being absent and not being engaged <clears throat> is wrong for two reasons. It's wrong, A, because it's not biblical. It is not in the Bible. And B, because it's not good. It seems good. It sort of sounds, you know, on first blush, it seems like it would be life-giving. It seems like it would be helpful to say to someone who's suffering, oh, God didn't really have anything to do with this. But it's not. It's not good. And if Mockingbird is about anything, is that Christianity is always 
uh, good news at the end of the day. And if it's not good news, it's probably not Christianity. So, first off, it's not biblical. I'm sure that you could find um, a lot of proof texts that would seem to suggest that God is not involved in suffering. But if you look at the grand sweep of the biblical narrative, let's just, uh, you know, let's recount the facts, shall we? Uh, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. God sends the great flood, which kills everyone except Noah and his family and two of all the animals. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Now, obviously, he eventually provides a way out, but he still tells him to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. God sends Israel into Egypt, where his people are enslaved for 400 years, right? They go there first because there's a famine in the land, and they go there to be fed, but eventually they multiply and become slaves. God leads his people out of Egypt into the desert for 40 years. God leads his people into battle in Canaan. God sends his people into captivity when they don't obey his law. Over and over and over again, we see God not just working through suffering, but actually working suffering, causing suffering and failure in the lives of his people. And you know, we're not the only ones to have noticed this. Uh, The Apostle Paul says this amazing thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. It's a little cut off, isn't it? Can you fix that, Dave? Maybe not. Good. That's weird. Anyway, I'll read it. For the creation was subjected to frustration or to futility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. The creation was subjected to frustration or futility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who created it. So, you know, with, with all due respect to those people who sort of say that, you know, uh, it's our job to kind of, you know, build heaven on earth and bring the kingdom here and things are getting better and they're going to get better. No. Wrong. Creation subjected to futility. And if you look at the word that Paul uses here, the Greek word, it's uh, matoyates, and it's variously translated as uh, futility, vanity, worthlessness, uselessness, emptiness. You know, there's two other times when this word uh, matoyates is used in the New Testament. One is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul writes, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility, the matoyates of their thinking, the vanity, the worthlessness of their thinking. And the second time, uh, Peter uses it uh, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the worthless way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. The matoyates of life, worthless way, handed down to you from your ancestors. So, this is a deeply negative word. A deeply negative word. And yet, Paul says that it is God's will. That the creation was subjected to matoyates, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who created it. Of God's will. Now, how can he say that? 
Well, again, you know, he looks at the Old Testament. He looks at the history of his chosen people. You know, what, what does it mean to be a chosen person in the Old Testament except to sort of be the, uh, you know, subject of God's suffering? He looks at uh, quotes from the book of, you know, Jeremiah. I mean, I'm sure you all, you've all heard this passage, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. You ever heard that verse before? Well, how about 15 chapters later, in Jeremiah 44, 17, where he says, Behold, I will watch over them for evil and not for good. And all the men of Judah that are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by the famine until there be an end of them. That probably wasn't, that probably wasn't a memory verse in a Sunday school. <laughs> you know, I'm guessing. Um, or, you know, I don't know how this happened. I didn't realize until I got to seminary. You know the book of Numbers? I know you all have memorized the book of Numbers. Um, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I think people get to Leviticus and they're like, forget this. You know, <laughs> let's, let's skip ahead to Matthew. Um, but you know what happens in Numbers? Numbers is the record of the 40 years of the wandering of God's people in the desert. Do you know why they wander in the desert for 40 years? So that God can kill off the first generation out of Egypt. You know, because they, they get the commandments and they uh, forge the golden calf. And God's like, okay, we've got to get to Canaan, but not with you people. <laughs> you know, we need your kids. So you're going to wander around for 40 years while I sort of kill you off. And it, and it reminds me, remember what their cry was when they came out of Egypt? You know, have you just brought us in the desert to kill us? To which the answer is a resounding, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. Um, or you look at the book of Job. You know, the book of Job is a little bit slippery because everyone wants to say, well, it wasn't God who did it. You know, it was the devil and God just let him do it. But come on. Come on. Is God God or is he not? And I'm going to say more about that. And not just that, not just the history, but how about Paul's own life? You know, Paul is Bruce Almighty, right? He has like a, a he has a real come to Jesus moment, or actually he has a Jesus come to him moment. You know, he's knocked off his horse, Saul, on his way to persecute and murder Christians because he hates them so much, and he sees Jesus, the risen Christ. He hears God's voice, you know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul must have thought to himself, man, I'm working for God. Like, I thought I was working for God before, but I'm really working for God now. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to go around. I'm going to go to these cities. They're going to hear what I have to say. Everyone's going to get converted. It's going to be incredible. And yet, when he gets there, rejected, imprisoned, beaten, and we don't know this for sure, but it's a pretty safe bet that he was executed in Rome. Paul suffered. Paul got hit, and by, hit by truck after truck after truck. And he probably wasn't expecting it to be quite so hard. But you know, there's kind of two things he knew for sure. One, he knew for sure that he had seen the risen Lord. He had seen Jesus. He was working for God. And God confirmed that with miracle after miracle, freeing him from prison, people getting converted. But the second thing he knew for sure was that he was suffering, that light, his life was hard. And what he struggled to do was find some sort of way to put those two uh, sort of seemingly incompatible truths together. 
And that's why he wrote passages like this. And I swear, uh, Tom and I did not sort of, we're not in cahoots on this, but I'm, you know, this is the same passage that he just read in his devotion. Imagine that. What does he say? And I'm sort of going to give you a little bit more. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Yay! But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Being given over passively. Who do you think is giving them over to death? So that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And, um, you know, he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is a church which, which is obsessed with uh, power and uh, sort of health. And, they're the health and wealth church, you know, uh, the Corinthian churches. They're also kind of like, you know, let's go sleep with everybody church. But that's another story. Um, they're, the, they're the health and wealth church. And so if you skip forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, Paul, there's this sort of litany of his sufferings, his shipwrecks. You know, he says... Uh, is it three times or five times he received the 40 lashes minus one? You know, he, he shipwrecked, imprisoned. He says, all these things have happened to me, um, and yet God says to me, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for in, my, in your weakness my power is made perfect. And then, of course, you know, so Paul thinks about history. He thinks about his own experience. And then, you know, if you really want to know what Christianity is about, where do you go? You go to the cross. You think about the cross. And when Jesus is sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, because he's so stressed out about what is about to happen to him the next day, his prayer is not, Oh God, I know you'd really like to do something about this, but I know you've given us free will. And you, you're, you're too loving to impinge the free will of the Romans and the Jews. Um, so, you know, I get it. And I'll sort of, you know, I'll take the suffering that they're about to dole out. That's not what he says. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And what does Isaiah 53 tell us? It was God's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross... Again, he doesn't say, you know, Father, I know that there's not really anything you can do about this because you've given us free will and you love us so too much to take, take it away. He cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And there's no voice from heaven that says, I haven't forsaken you. You know, don't blame me. <laughs> God is silent. He, uh, he takes it. So it is in no way biblical to say that God is not present and active and uh, 
behind our sufferings. That Paul does not absolve God. Jesus does not absolve God. God seems to have no interest in absolving himself. So why do so many Christian, uh, you know, experts, quote-unquote, waste so much breath trying to uh, justify and absolve a God that has no interest in doing that for himself? Why do we? So it's not biblical. That's number one. Number two, it is not good. It is not helpful. It is not pastoral. It is not sensitive to say that God is absent in the midst of our suffering or that God is powerless in the midst of our suffering. And that sounds very counterintuitive, but I want to talk about that. And as I talk about that, I want to show you a clip um, from a conference that I uh, went to um, the earlier part of this year, back in January. Um, it's a speaker named Jack Deere, who was a um, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, which you know anything about Dallas, it's a dispensationalist, or what's called a cessationist seminary, meaning that they believe that um, there's no more uh, Holy Spirit action, basically, in the world today. No more speaking in tongues, no more healings, um, that that was sort of a specific uh, dispensation for the early life of the church, now that it stopped. And Jack Deere was a professor there, and then he had um, a charismatic experience, a Holy Spirit experience, and he changed his mind. And uh, shockingly, uh, you know, uh, Dallas tried to murder him. Um, you know, almost, you know, only emotionally, not physically. Um, as often happens to people, you know, with whom you mostly agree, but don't all the way agree. So he went on to be a uh, sort of Assemblies of God pastor and a Presbyterian pastor, and then he uh, retired, and he, uh, well, didn't retire, but became more of an author. So he himself has suffered. Um, he also had very abusive parents growing up, uh, so he, he suffered in that context. But in this particular clip, clip um, he's going to talk about his own family, about his wife and his three children. And it's a little bit long. It's like six minutes, um, but I, it's kind of amazing. So let's watch this and talk about it. We have two perfect children. My firstborn son, Stephen Craig here, and my thirdborn, Claudia, Elise Elizabeth here. Then we had to stop our secondborn son in between. And when they stopped the born, we all stopped. I love Scott, but never do stop. Uh, he started on marijuana when he was 13, found it at 16, and at 19, he was in rehab for seven months. We thought he was clean, and Scott was amazing. Scott could make, make everybody in the family laugh, he could make everybody in the family rage. Uh, he had to use emotion, he could see, he could read a person so well, that's why he could make him laugh, and that's why he could really hurt him if he wanted to. He was this beautiful, blonde haired charm. The girls pursued Scott in kindergarten. All the girls pursued him. When we got older, they pulled up the BMW. Find him in a convenience store, a ball in your daughter, they walked in the sunset with him. He was, he was such a charm, he was always able to find people to care for us. We became to that point where I said, Scott, you have to leave, we wouldn't be that. We just have to leave. Those are the two options. You can take yourself out, but you're not going to take the four of us out with you. And then he got out of rehab, the life was pretty good for a while, and then uh, he started that downward path again. And by the summer of 2000, he was sleeping in a garage in San Jose with a dog. And it was killing his father's heart. Because I had plenty of money to take care of that boy, to get him an apartment, to get him to college, to have everything he needed. It was killing me. I couldn't do it. Part of his trouble was a dad who was always rescuing him. 
I didn't know I had permission not to. I didn't know to rescue him. But sometimes we were sent for him. And now he's sleeping in a garage with a dog. No one left to chum. And I'm talking to him almost every day on the phone. And I'm saying things like, Scott, this is the best day of your life. It's just going to get worse if you don't change. I want to change that. We have to stop having that kind of conversation over and over and over. And then in July, on that mountaintop, I hear this. I hear God speak. He says, bring Scott home and treat him like the prodigal son returned home, though he hasn't returned home. And my heart just sang, because I'm, I'm sure I knew about them, that when I brought him home, treated him like he would come home, that that was going to be the thing with our relationship and say, him. So that's exactly what I did. And treated my product son and buy a $30,000 pickup, give him an apartment in Bozeman with some young Christian guys I knew, I knew their fathers, get him enrolled in Montana State for the spring semester. Um, that's what I did. And we spent 40 days uh, hunting out in the, uh, the most beautiful spots you can imagine. He loved that. And I took him with me every time I went out, and I went out more because that's what he wanted to do. Horseback rides in the snow, the rifles went after hell, bullying with deer, bullying with elk, camping out and pleasant hunting, and all that sort of thing. And, and we could do more than talk, we could actually communicate during that time. And, and, and now it's like we were on the way to Berkeley. We were on the way to Berkeley. And then uh, Christmas time, we had a whole family together at our house, and the other, actually not after Christmas. So 11 o'clock, he's going out with his girlfriend, so I'll be back later to that. It's 15 in the morning. Uh, next morning came, he's one that he's supposed to go to the park with mom, except for his new partner. And uh, the other two kids are out there all up. I'm sitting by the fireplace and riding my next book on the local computer, just happy as I can be. So he's very he had to come down from his room. And uh, I go up to wake him up. And I opened the door, and he was uh, sitting at the foot of his bed on the floor, legs extended, fully clothed. And my first thought is, uh, Scott passed out and just drank too much last night. Then I saw the blood, and I thought he fell and hurt himself. And then I saw more. And I just said, Scott. And I knelt down beside him. And my 44 Magnum was in his left hand, his right hand was in his left hand. And he shot himself. He was broken beer bottle in the other hand. I got my son Stephen to go get police. And I got uh, Lisa to woke her up. And I said, Scott shot himself. He's dead, honey. And I don't think she's going to that room. And she said, if you don't let me go into that room, I will never forgive you. Okay. Got my rope put it on. And we gathered uh, around his body. And I held his head in my hands. Lisa put her hand on his right shoulder. Stephen set in front of him with his hand on uh, Scott's knee. And Elise stood at the door Scott's bedroom. And she was praying. She was holding her eyes up. She was trying to limit the horror that wanted to come into her mind. And we prayed. And I said, we're just going to pray that God can give Scott back until the police come and make us leave. I don't know how long it was. It was 30 minutes. 
And that is the beginning of my third phase of friendship with God. He took away a lot of things. He took away a lot of things. And you say, he took away a lot of things? Yeah, I said it on purpose. I don't believe that he was the secondary cause of my son's death, but God's love was the cause of everything. When the Sabinas came and attacked uh, uh, Job's property, and Calvin's came and saved the men against the house and those kids, Job says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. And he said, most importantly, blessing and make the Lord. It's like Job said, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, Father, I'm going to believe that you're good, but you'll do it's always good. <laughs> Was that heavy enough? Um... So I show that to you uh, because here's someone who's actually suffered and has suffered in a way that, uh, you know, I hope none of you have suffered. Maybe, maybe there is someone who's, who's gone through the death of a child. I, I can't really, you know, I have two boys. Um, uh, they're 10 and 7, and I just sort of can't imagine anything like that. Um, and... Um, I guess two thoughts. One is, uh, if I was ever, you know, if I was ever really suffering, if I ever lost a child, he's a guy I want to talk to. You know, uh, the, the depth of sort of uh, compassion and mercy and understanding and grace is striking. But as he talks about uh, God, uh, you know, God, I don't believe God was a secondary cause of my son's death. I believe he's the primary cause of all things. I think the question, you know, Again, now we're not talking really biblically or theologically. We're just talking personally and pastorally. You know, what is good news? And the question that he raises is, when you get hit by the truck, when something like this happens to you, uh, when you are right in the middle of your darkest place, or right in the middle of suffering or loss, would you rather worship a God and believe in a God who is absent or present? Would you rather worship and believe in a God who is passive or active? A God who is uh, sitting on the sidelines or a God who's doing something? A God who's um, you know, sort of twiddling his thumbs and biding his time in the name of preserving your human free will? Or a God who is getting his uh, hands dirty in the realities of everyday life. And another question. If God is not present and active in our sufferings, where exactly is he? You know, it's not like life is 95% great and 5% difficult. <laughs> you know? Our day-in, day-out lives are difficult and challenging and out of control and suffering and things happen to us. And if he is not there, if he is not right there at work, present, active, where exactly is he? And the last thing I want to say, um, this, uh, 
when I saw that, it was January of this year, so, uh, you know, nine months ago, eight months ago. And uh, it was, this was not an abstract question for me. You know, that I was right, well, I thought I was in the middle of the most difficult part of my life. Um, you know, Dave said I was in New York City for, you know, I lived in New York for five years, and I went to seminary, then I came back to New York to plant a church, um, to plant a new church, and that was kind of the fulfillment of a big dream. We love New York City, we sort of always wanted to plant a church, and um, all sorts of miraculous things happened to get us into New York City. You know, our kids got in these amazing private schools, like six months after the application deadline, with huge scholarships, and the money we needed to come out of the woodworks, and, you know, Dave was there, and, and we had this amazing community in New York City, and it was just like, you know, it just, it was clearly God's call. I know we were called to go to New York City to plant a church. But by January of this year, um, we had uh, six weeks of money left in the bank, and there was some um, sort of serious conflict issues arising in the church, and I'd found out a month before that the senior warden of the church, who was a very close friend, had been um, lying to me for six months, and that a big chunk of money that we were counting on to sort of get us you know, through the next few months was not going to come in. Um, and it was just, it was very hard. And it was especially hard because we were so happy in New York. And my kids were so happy in New York. They loved their school. They loved their friends. My wife had better friends than she'd ever had in her life. We did not want to go anywhere. Um, and when I heard Jack Deere give this talk, um, I just sat and wept. I sat and wept. Um, because it, it was like he was reaching out and, and you know, squeezing my heart. And uh, I went home with a plan. You know, we sort of had a, a come to Jesus moment with the congregation where I laid it out. I was like, okay, this is going to be the thing. I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to tell them how much we need. And they're going to actually start giving now. <laughs> you know, because in case you're wondering, you know, New Yorkers don't go to church. And when they do, they don't give. Um, and our church is mainly young adults. And young adults never give anything. Um, so, uh, so we were in bad shape. Um, and, uh, you know, and then it just got harder. It got harder. And, uh, you know, by April and May, um, uh, and really, you know, June, July, uh, we hadn't gotten paid in three months. We were paying $4,500 a month on our apartment. Um, we were completely out of money. Uh, and especially because we, like I said, we didn't want to go anywhere. We were sort of, with the exception of the church being a total disaster, uh, we love New York City. It's home. Our kids were born there. We didn't want to go anywhere else. And then, you know, this job offer came up to move to Houston, you know, <laughs> which is no, one, no one's dream destination. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're just like, come on, really? God, Houston. Uh. And we fought it 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 and we fought it. But I'll tell you, um, you know, the, the only thing that got me through um, that that time in our life was uh, sort of the, the, the assurance of the knowledge of three things. And the first thing was that God loved us, that loved me unconditionally. That was true. Um, and the second thing was that uh, someday soon uh, I was going to uh, go home uh, to be with him in a place where there would be no more suffering, no more death, no more pain, no more anxiety, uh, no more bills to pay. <laughs> Sounds really nice. Um, oh, and by the way, the low point, let me start the low point before I get to my third point. The low point in this was um, we were driving up to my mom's to drop my kids off because I think we were packing up the apartment because we'd taken the job in Houston. And we're on the way out and I'm running out of gas on the Merritt Parkway, if you know Connecticut at all. 
I have not, like, my, my thing goes to zero, and my little the distance till empty thing says zero, and we've got like 30 miles to go. And my credit card is maxed out, and my bank account is overdrawn, and I have no cash. And, um, and I suddenly remember, oh yeah, uh, you know, I have this bag of cash in my sock drawer. And so me and my boys uh, went down to the bank and sort of uh, had cash, you know, done the penny thing, you know, and gotten the money. And I turned on a Jackson, my 10 year old, I'm like, you've got a $10 bill, don't you? Um, and I, <laughs> and my wife turned and looked at me just like, really? Like this, 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 this is where we are right now? This is where we've gotten to? Um, so he had a $10 bill and we filled up the car and we made it to my mom's. Um, that was the low point, you know. Uh, it's pretty bad. Um, so the three things, God loved me, someday I'd be in heaven, and the third thing that kept me going was the knowledge that everything, everything, everything that happened to me in my life was a product of God's love for me. You know that, um, Two verses before the Roman, yeah, that, that famous Romans verse, for we, know, for we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And that can be so pat and trite. You know, have you ever seen that little cartoon of the uh, early Christians being led into the Colosseum with the lions, and the, the tagline is, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? <laughs> it's genius. Um, but I knew that. That every, everything that was happening to me somehow was a product of God's love for me. And that filled me with um, hope. Gave me a little bit of faith. Gave me a little peace. That, that, once again, what was happening to me was not the result of my own um, uh, faulty or insufficient exercise of my own free will. Or anyone else's sort of sin. And that God was sitting on the sidelines saying, I, wish, I really wish I could do something about that. But, you know, got to give you your freedom. Can you imagine what it would have been like to believe that? You know, that God was not present and active, that this was not a, a, a result of his work, but that it was a result just of my own sin or someone else's sin? Or whose sin is it? You know? Whose sin, Lord, that this man was born blind, himself or his parents? That's not good news. The only good news was that God was still God in the midst of my suffering. And that was nothing compared to Jack Deere's suffering. So I'm, I'm very thankful for Jack Deere, who's been to the bottom of the pit and can still say that. So, God causes suffering. It's biblical. It's good. It's difficult. But it's better than the alternative. And uh, tomorrow, I'm going to talk about something very dangerous and, and sort of, um, which is sort of the why question, which in some ways is an unanswerable question, in some ways is, is not necessarily a helpful question to answer. You know, you don't want to come up to someone who is suffering and be like, let me tell you why you're suffering. Um, that's not helpful. But um, I think Paul does actually, you know, Paul gave it some thought and may, have, may actually have some things to say that um, I'm hoping will be helpful. So, thank you.